So our reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 3, starting at verse 1 to 21. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon, the son of Ahinoam of Jezreel. His second, Kiliab, the son of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. The third, Absalom, the son of Mahaka, daughter of Talmai, king of Gersha. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. The sixth, Ithrim, the son of David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. During the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. Now Saul had had a concubine named Rizpah, daughter of Ayah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Abner was very angry because of what Ishbosheth said. So he answered, Am I a dog's head on Judah's side? This very day I am loyal to the house of your father Saul and to his family and friends. I haven't handed you over to David. Yet now you accuse me of an offence involving this woman? May God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath, and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul, and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. Ishbosheth did not dare say another word to Abner, because he was afraid of him. Then Abner sent messages on his behalf to say to David, Whose land is it? Make an agreement with me, and I will help you bring all Israel over to you. Good, said David, I will make an agreement with you. But I demand one thing of you. Do not come into my presence unless you bring Michal, daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. Then David sent messages to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, demanding, Give me my wife Michal, whom I betrothed to myself for the price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. So Ishbosheth gave orders, uh, gave orders and had her taken away from her husband, Paltiel, son of Laish. Her husband, however, went with her, weeping behind her all the way to Baharim. Then Abner said to him, go back home. So he, went, so he went back. Abner conferred with the elders of Israel and said, For some time you have wanted to make David your king. Now do it. For the Lord, uh, the Lord promised David, By my servant David I will rescue my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of their enemies. Abner also spoke to the Benjamites in person. 
Then he went to Hebron to tell David everything that Israel and the whole tribe of Benjamin wanted to do. Then Abner, who had 20 men with him, came to David at Hebron. David prepared a feast for him and his men. Then Abner said to David, Let me go at once and assemble all Israel for my lord the king, so that they may make a, a covenant with you, and that you may rule over all that your, hearts desire, your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Thank you, Sarah. Good evening, everyone. Hey, do keep your Bibles open. 2 Samuel 3, 1 through 21. Let me lead us briefly in prayer as we come to this part of God's Word together. Let's pray. We thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, that you speak to us in your Word, the Scriptures, and by the power of your Spirit at work within and amongst us. Heavenly Father, please uh, help us to lay aside any distractions or hindrances to us trembling at and rejoicing at your Word to us tonight, so that by hearing it and putting it into practice, we might become more and more like our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. Friends, I'm going to tell you one of my pet hates, of which there are many, is when people misuse the Bible by putting the reader into the story or the life of one of the main characters as if that's the reason why that part of the Bible was written. The big example of this, the example par excellence is with David and Goliath. You might have even heard something like this, right? You're little David and you've got some problem in your life, something that stresses you out. And well, the preacher says, if you just have enough faith like David did, then you can run against that giant problem like a kid with a stone in a sling and overcome it by your faith in God. i got news for you people, that is not the reason that the story of David and Goliath exists and frankly, you are not David. If anything, you're a cowering Israelite on the sideline. David is a shadow of Jesus, not a shadow of you. The other one that you often get is, you remember that story in the New Testament, Jesus walking on the water, and then Peter says, if it's you, Lord, you know, tell me to come to you, and Peter will start walking on the water, and of course he does, but then he looks and he sees the storms and the height of the waves, and he starts to sink, and then the book or the preacher, whoever's got this passage and they're going to misuse it, they say something like, what are the storms in your life? What are the difficult things that you need to have more faith in order to overcome? I can't stand it. That is not the reason that part of the Bible exists. It's not to put you into the story. We've got this narcissistic tendency to always think it's always about us, right? Now, why on earth am I telling you this pet hate of mine at the beginning of this sermon? Well, probably because you might enjoy the fact that I'm about to shoot myself in the foot. Because as followers of Jesus, I'm actually convinced, just this little bit once, that it's quite helpful for us to see that there is a little bit of Abner in all of us. There's a little bit of Abner in you and in me if we're followers of Jesus. As a matter of fact, even if we're not followers of Jesus, there's a little bit of Abner in there as well. Why do I make this claim against my better judgment? And if I'm right, what on earth, if anything, should we do about the fact that there's a little bit of Abner in all of us? I mean, is that a good or a bad thing? And of course, the answer is yes, both. But keep that question in mind as we come now to this next instalment of our series 
into Samuel. We're in the stage of Israel's history here, where David, the chosen king, chosen according to God's own heart, is inevitably coming to power. He he will inevitably come to power because God has promised that's what's going to happen. And we get a summary statement in the opening chapter, uh, 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 opening verse of chapter 3, which says, the war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. That's the period of Bible history we are in at this stage. And, And it's a summary, it's the big picture. So, you're right to ask, well, what are some of the specifics? How exactly did the house of David grow stronger and stronger? Well, the first and obvious answer is that he grew stronger in terms of his, his kingdom and his rule by increasing his family. Uh, at this point, if you remember, Saul is dead and so were his sons who would have been considered eligible successors to, to take over his rule. But Saul's youngest, I think, son, Ishbosheth, had survived the battle at Gilboa. My guess is he, he could have been too young to fight at the time. We don't know this for sure, but every time there's a genealogy, uh, Ishbosheth is at the bottom, so I, I figure he was a kid. And Abner, the commander of Saul's army, had made Ishbosheth the king over Israel as a rival to David. And uh, so far, David was actually only recognised as king in Judah. So, you know, big house this side, big house that side, rivalry going on, because that's how Abner has set it up. But you can also see from this, of course, that Saul's family is obviously quite depleted, whereas David's family happens to be greatly increasing. So from verse 2, sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Adnon, the son of Ahinoam of Jezreel, the second Kiliab, the son of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, the third Absalom, the son of Maaka, daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, the fourth Adonijah, the son of Haggith, the fifth Shephatiah, the son of Abital, the sixth, anyone got six kids here? Yeah, right. The sixth Ithrian, the son of David's wife Eglah, these were born to David in Hebron. Now, As we learned last week, thank you, polygamy is not strictly forbidden in the Old Testament, but it's certainly not upheld as the ideal. The ideal, of course, is one man and one woman for life, which would actually describe the vast majorities of marriages in Israel at this time. David's many wives and concubines, as well as the children born to them, will, in the not-too-distant future, prove to create all sorts of problems and issues for David and his kingdom. You might even know, if you've read ahead or you know the story, what Absalom ends up doing. You might end up knowing what happens with Macau. But anyway, for the time being, and from a strictly empire-building angle... The increase of David's descendants is certainly a way that his house was strengthened. And when you consider, by the way, that Hebron, see it says that these were born in Hebron twice, when you consider that Hebron was the first bit of the promised land that Abraham had claimed to, you can't help but wonder if maybe a descendant of David, a son of David, will eventually be the means by which blessing comes to all the families of the earth that was promised through 
Abraham. You've kind of got David being put in the, the genealogical line, if you like, of Abraham, and therefore you're looking for a son of David who's going to bring blessing. But the other way that David's kingdom uh, gradually prevailed over Saul's was that Saul's great military commander, namely Abner, he saw the reality. Abner saw the reality that David really was God's chosen ruler. And so Abner transferred from the house of Saul to the house of David. Uh, here's how it happens. First of all, Abner is presented as this self-interested, power-hungry guy who's moving up in the ranks. Verse 6, during the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. Like many influential leaders, like a lot of politicians, etc., Abner was keen to continue gaining power for himself, probably for his own advantage. And so Abner then did something that in that time and place, in that context, could have been perceived as a claim to the throne, or at least as a claim to be a, the second most powerful person in Israel. And the thing that he did was to sleep with one of the late King Saul's concubines. So verse 7, now Saul had had a concubine named Ritzpah, daughter of Aya, and Ishbosheth said to Abner, why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Now it's not so much that Ishbosheth is questioning Abner's morality, but he's questioning his authority. Uh, you might wonder the first time you read it through, is just, this just an empty sort of accusation or is it right? But after you read it through a few times, it's like, he never denies it, yeah, and he's looking for his own power. This is a great way of doing it. He slept with his father's concubine. Abner doesn't deny the charge, but he certainly does not like his status being questioned. And frankly, he explodes with an almost narcissistic rage when the charge comes his way. But you might also have noticed that his outburst happens in such a way that makes us think he's now using this whole incident as a bit of a convenient excuse to move up the ranks even more by jumping ship, by transferring from the house of Saul to the house of David. Here's how the explosion of Abner goes. Verse 8, Abner was very angry because of what Ishbosheth said. So he answered, am I a dog's head on Judah's side? I take it a head is someone who's a leader, but if you're a Judahite, you're a dog. So am I, am I a ruler on Judah's side? This very day I am loyal to the house of your father Saul and to his family and friends. I haven't handed you over to David, yet now you accuse me of an offence involving this woman, which, P.S., I don't deny. May God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And of course, verse 11, Ishbosheth did not dare to answer Abner another word because he was afraid of him and probably rightly so. Notice Abner's sense of self-importance and status and power when he says all this stuff. He speaks as if at any time he could have handed Ishbosheth over to David, which was actually probably true. But he also speaks as if he will be the vital player in God bringing about his plans and purposes to establish David as the ruler over Israel. I will do for David what God 
promised would happen. And that is absolutely not true. God does not need anyone in order to do, uh, to, to fulfill his plans and purposes. Ishbosheth is right to fear Abner because he genuinely is, I think, at this point, at the top of the power pyramid, which was kind of sealed the deal by sleeping with Saul's concubine. But he wants more. And he sees the reality that David really will be the ruler of all Israel. Hence, we rightly get the sense that his anger and his outburst here also provided the convenient excuse for him to jump ship from one kingdom to the other. You see, despite his very obvious pride and sense of self-importance and an aspiration for power, Abner still sees reality for what it is. He knows that you cannot successfully oppose God's chosen king. So what you can do, even if from sinful, selfish motives, what you can do only is really join God's chosen king. And it's as he seeks to join David that he starts to learn that David has genuine authority. David is the one who's actually really in charge. He's very different to Ishbosheth. Abner might have thought that he'd still be the biggest player, the biggest fish in the pond sort of thing. But in his dealings with David, he starts to learn that David has actual authority. Here's how it plays out. From verse 12, then Abner sent messengers on his behalf, because you're powerful, you send messengers on your behalf, to say to David, whose land is it? Make an agreement with me and I will help you bring all Israel over to you. So basically, David, get me on your side and I'll make your kingship legit, just like I did with Ishbosheth. But look now how David responds and totally calls all the shots. Verse 13, good, said David, I will make an agreement with you. But I demand one thing of you. And the demand he makes is a very legitimate demand because he had the power to earn this particular demand. From verse 13, do not come into my presence unless you bring Michal, daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. But even then, David didn't wait for Abner to deliver on the demand. Verse 14, then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, demanding, give me my wife Michal, whom I betrothed to myself for the price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. That's what every woman feels is really romantic. You got a big diamond ring, fancy that. I got 200 foreskins. And she really did, by the way. It was a hundred foreskins was the price, but David showed how much he loved her by... Anyway. <laughs> so Ishbosheth who's now very weak and knows it, well, he's got no choice. He gave orders and had her taken away from her husband, Paltiel, son of Laish. Her husband, however, went with her, weeping behind her all the way to Baharim. Then Abner said to him, go back home. So he went back. Now, I know we get really distracted at this point when we read this because surely we want to know more about this relationship and this horrible thing between Paltiel and, and Michal. Uh, if you don't know the background, uh, David had married Michal and they were husband and wife, but David had to flee for his life when Saul was pursuing him. And Saul 
used his authority, as he often did, to do something totally dumb and dodgy. Well, David's gone. You, lady, go be with him. She probably had to do it under sufferance. I don't think she would have been keen. But he, I, I'm going to guess he knew that Michal was actually the wife of David. So he actually, in a way, is kind of getting what he deserves. You can't mess with marriage. You can't just, oh, well, you know, good, I'll take another man's uh, a wife. Ridiculous. But that's not really where the thrust of the passage is. We can sit there and speculate on how that scene played out the whole time. It's not what the text is pushing us towards. The thrust here is about how David calls the shots. He won't be a puppet king. He truly is the Lord's anointed and he speaks with the authority that God gives to his anointed. The real question here is, will Abner learn to serve David not because he sees it as advantageous to himself, but simply because he learns that David really is God's chosen Messiah. I like to think that he does. I like to think it's the latter, especially because as Abner goes about doing his new task, he gets confronted not just by the authority of King David, but also by the grace of God's anointed. Verse 17, Abner conferred with the elders of Israel and said, for some time you have wanted to make David your king. P.S. I really want that to happen, but I'll pretend it's for you because I'm quite diplomatic. You wanted to make David your king. Now do it, for the Lord promised David by my servant David, I will rescue my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to the Benjamites in person. Now, that's very significant because you remember Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. So if he can win them over and say, don't have Saul's house as king, have have David. If he's going to win them, he's definitely won the lot. Then he went to Hebron to tell David everything that Israel and the whole tribe of Benjamin wanted to do. So Abner went around doing his whole kingmaker thing. But then he went to report to David in person where things were up to. Now, having been in the house of Saul and having seen that David is no pushover, Abner doesn't know whether or not he should be worried about meeting David face to face. If you remember from last week, actually, Abner was the guy who even though it was reluctant, he was the guy who had killed Asahel. You know, that whole spear in the stomach coming out the back thing? And Asahel would have been a person important to David. He was a brother of Joab, who's the commander of David's army, right? So, so Abner kind of knows that he's been an enemy of the Lord's anointed in a number of ways. And even though he's got this agreement going, he's kind of tentative about meeting him. Abner's world of political positioning would no doubt have been filled with envy and rivalry and backstabbing, all the stuff that goes along uh, with, with, you know, sort of power plays. And it probably influenced him in such a way that he approached David with literal guardedness. And so verse 20, when Abner, who had 20 men with him, there's a bodyguard, came to David at Hebron, i.e., Even with the agreement in place, he was tentative about meeting David face to face and he made sure he was guarded. But when that happened, well, the Lord's anointed, David, who had real authority, also chose to display the grace of God. Continuing verse 20, 
David prepared a feast for him and his men. There's an open arms welcome. Even for people who once were his enemies and who are fearful of approaching him, there is an open arms welcome for all who acknowledge the true lordship of God's anointed. Which is why, of course, I can't help but see the shadow of God's ultimate anointed, the true Messiah, Jesus, in what David does here. The heart of David, like the heart of God, is to show mercy and to show grace and to welcome people into his kingdom. And so, once that had happened, verse 21, then Abner said to David, let me go at once and assemble all Israel for my Lord the King, so that they may make a covenant with you and that you may rule over all that your heart, your authoritative yet gracious heart, desires. So, David sent Abner away and he went in peace. And by the way, in the next chapter, the next half of the chapter, that little phrase is reported again. And I can't help but think of that parable, you know, the Pharisee and the tax collector, where the one who knew the grace of God went away justified, that kind of vibe. And also, this is the first time that David gets referred to as my Lord and King, my Lord the King. And it's by someone who up to this point at least is full of pride and self-importance and who yet now has recognised the truth of God's word and is now transferred into the kingdom of the Lord's anointed. I suspect that with these last words of our passage, we're to see a hint of a change in Abner, or at least to entertain the possibility of a change in Abner. Maybe he is finally subduing his pride in order to serve God's King. And we would hope that from here on in, he would continue to subdue his pride, that when he now says, I'm going to assemble all Israel for my Lord the King, so you can do what your heart, that he's now actually working because he sees the goodness of this King. Now, if that was the case, that'll make a lot of sense because subduing pride and continuing to subdue pride are necessary tasks of those who know the reality that God's Messiah is Lord. And it's precisely because they're confronted both with the amazing authority and the even more amazing grace and goodness of God's true anointed that they can't help but to, to undergo that process. Now, it may be the case, I don't know all of you on all your hearts, it may be the case that one, one or more of you tonight are, uh, are people who have not yet seen the reality. You haven't come to terms with the reality that God's ultimate Messiah, the true Christ, the son of David, who is, of course, Jesus, is, in fact, the one that God has put in charge over all people and all things. And his kingdom will inevitably be established on earth as it currently is in heaven. That can't not happen. It will be the case that Jesus, who currently rules over all things, will consummate his rule and all people will one day bow before him willingly or unwillingly. Perhaps you haven't yet seen that reality.
And so the question I ask you, if that is you, and more importantly, frankly, the question God asks you, is will you see reality? Will you see things for how they really are? I mean, God made it really, really easy to recognise who the true ruler is. He did it by raising him from the dead. You kind of can't go past that sort of thing, right? Will you see the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord and that to be on the right side of history is to be on the right side of Jesus? You see, even if a self-interested, power-hungry guy like Abner can see who God has chosen to be his ruler, well then, you definitely can as well. And if you do see the reality, if you do know the truth that Jesus is Lord, will you confront the pride that prevents you from transferring into his kingdom? Will you go the way that I like to think Abner was going? You see, it's very common for people to think if they're not yet Christians, they think that the reason they remain outside of Christ is because they're not yet convinced of the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel, yeah, is that you're a sinner deserving of God's judgment, that Jesus has kindly taken that judgment on your behalf when he died on, uh, to pay for your sin on the cross, that God raised him up to show that, yes, he is the Christ, the Lord of all, and that he is soon to come again to judge the living and the dead. People think... They need to be more convinced of the gospel. But far more often than not, the reason someone won't transfer to the kingdom of Jesus has nothing to do with a lack of understanding the gospel or of a need to be more convinced. Far more often than not, the real reason people won't come into Jesus' kingdom is because of pride, self-importance, like Abner, they would rage at the idea that their self-achieved status or even their decision and their will and their autonomy and all those things actually need to be given up in order that they come to know the one who truly is in charge. If you've been around here for a while and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, it's almost certainly not because you haven't heard enough but because you're not willing to let go of your self-importance. Out of his tremendous love and grace, Jesus calls you to deny yourself, to take up your cross and to follow him. And for those that do, they're the ones God is graciously transferring, or has transferred, I should say, into his kingdom. And in case you didn't know, by the way... <clears throat> When, you become, when I became a follower of Jesus, I was 19, the kingdom that I was transferred out of and the kingdom that anyone is transferred out of in order to become a follower of Jesus is not the kingdom of me, it's not the kingdom of spiritual neutrality, because none of those things really exist. It's actually the kingdom of Satan. Either Jesus is your Lord and Saviour or you are in the domain of darkness. Your ruler is the devil. Don't believe me? Colossians 1 verse 13, this is speaking about Christians, it says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, either you give up your pride 
and follow Jesus or else you remain not spiritually neutral, but you remain in the domain of darkness. But for those of us who have seen reality and who have taken up our cross to follow Jesus, it's imperative we ask ourselves the question, how will I continue to confront my pride? Now, brothers and sisters, I've got to tell you, this is one of those questions that's a bit nasty because it's only ever always more important than what you're able to perceive it is. You see, pride manifests itself in such a way that it's always easier for others to see it before it is for you to see it. And this is why God's so keen and why Christians are so keen on having regular fellowship. This is why church is a thing that Christians are committed to or growth group. That's why you get someone who's not particularly committed to church or growth group and they just, that you've got to worry about their spiritual health because it actually takes other people to kind of point out things that you yourself are unable because pride, by definition, makes you unable to see. Uh, I've probably shown you this ages ago, but a classic thing come up by two psychologists, the Johari window. Anyone heard of the Johari window before? No, I'll explain it to you. Four categories, right? There's stuff I know about me and you know about me. I like guitars, I know it, you know it. There's stuff I know about me, but you don't know about me. But if I tell you one of them, then, you know, I'll, you'll, you'll know about it too. The classic example I used, and I've told you once, so maybe this doesn't fit there, but there's this beautiful landscape lawn just around the corner from the street where I live. And every time I drive past there, I think to myself, it would be so easy because it's on the corner just to do a little doughy and just like, you know, <laughs> there's even a sign that says, don't step on the grass. It's like, God made the grass to walk on, man. I wanted to... Anyway, that's a sinful desire. But now that I've told you, it doesn't fit in that box. But before I told you, I knew that and you didn't, right? That's that one. The third one is there's stuff about me that I don't know and you don't know either. Number of hairs on my head, I don't know, you don't know. Both of us know it's diminishing, but we don't know what it is. <laughs> The really scary one, and everyone has this box, the really, really scary one is there's stuff I don't know about me, but everyone else does. Everyone has that box, and that's the box that pride loves. You actually need to get to the point where you can say, hey, trusted friend, tell me what you see in me that I don't see that's actually offensive. It's especially hard with older people. You see, when there's an older man or an older woman, I'm not going to... It's going to be really difficult, if not impossible, for me to kind of point out something that is a manifestation, frankly, of their pride because of their... That's got to be invited. And it's so easy for people, especially... But not exclusively, but especially professionals, people who have had a long sort of time of having people come to them and they tell them what to do and they sort of get to the point where it becomes very hard for them to be spoken to by anyone else you know what I'm saying you've got to sort of watch out for that you need to get to the point where you can say to a trusted brother or sister tell me about my box that I don't know that everyone else does right is this am I whacked out in some way shape or form because that's where pride likes to hang around uh, this morning I challenged our, our Harrington Park congregation because there's this culture problem that's just so persistent of people rocking up to church after the first song kills me it's like why and I wonder if part of it actually comes from pride. You see, me doing my thing on my time is more important than me doing something on your time. Well, there's pride, isn't there? 
Well, what could it be for us? Well, you ever notice that when you're in a big group of people having a conversation or in a group text or something like that and you're just itching to say something so much so that you don't want to listen to the other people, you've just got to kind of say it. And there's always someone like that who always just has to get their word in over and over because maybe they just think that what they need to say is more important than everyone else. There's a little challenge, isn't there? To think, am I that person? Or am, I being, am I actually someone who's quick to listen and slow to speak rather than quick to speak and slow to listen? No, that could be an indication of pride. I don't know what it is, right? There's always things like that. But you need one another to work it out. So uh, how will you continue to confront your pride? Well, one of the really good answers is you can keep meeting with other Christians and get to the point where you're relationally comfortable enough to say, Oi, just tell me if I'm being a bit, you know, self-centred here. Tell me if I'm being a bit stupid here or something like that. That can be really good. Another way you can confront your pride is get rid of all social media because it's evil and narcissistic. Oh, sorry, did I say that out loud? <laughs> oh, imagine being in a generation where all you knew was the social media and the texting and it's just so about you and... Oh, oh sorry. Yeah, be really careful with that stuff. You know, when um, Matt Squire... Have Dear love, beloved brother Matt Squire, we fared well to him just a few weeks ago. He's going to be in Wollongong. I, I did a farewell for him at our youth group as well. I said, Matt, you got an open mic, say whatever you want. Anyone, does anyone from youth here remember what he said? What was the first, do you, what was the first thing he said? Yeah, <laughs> the first thing. He said, especially if you're a guy, delete Instagram. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm not commanding you to delete Instagram, right? <laughs> <laughs> But he's got a good point, doesn't he? He's kind of like, this stuff is just going to keep inflating you and keep causing issues for you and it makes it hard for you to have real conversations with real people. So, you know, keep it at bay. I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what it is for me. So you'll have to tell me and I'll have to tell you or someone will. But uh, more than that, we're going to ask God to help us with a lot. So let me conclude our sermon time in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who you showed to be the true Messiah, the Lord's anointed by his resurrection from the dead, and who in his amazing grace welcomes proud, sinful rebels like us with open arms when we acknowledge his Lordship, and that he forgives us of all offence and all sin, of all our opposition to him and to you. Heavenly Father, where we have need of killing pride, we thank you for the gift of one another and pray that we be the kind of people who continue to cultivate such wonderful relationships as brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, that we can help one another know what's in that blank box, that we can help one another know if we've manifested our pride in ways that uh, we can't see that others can And Father, I pray for anyone here who knows the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord, but on account of not wanting to give up self, is holding off from turning and repenting and putting their faith in you, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you might call them home, that you might call them into your kingdom so that they can be truly forgiven and they can live not with themselves or with the devil as Lord, but with Jesus Christ as Lord and stand firm both now and on the last day. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.